reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so that's on page 1,155. It's a very satisfying number. (laughs) It's still rustling. Okay. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, 
just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Yes, why don't we dive in? But before that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son, Jesus Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. I wonder if, like in my family, um, you had the sort of everyday plates and bowls and that sort of thing, but then alongside that, you had the fine china, the good china, um, the stuff that basically only comes out on very special occasions. Anyone else have that um, growing up? My parents, they got it for their wedding. Um, and it, essentially, it just sat in the drawer all year, apart from Christmas. That was it. Um, I think, though, that that is often how we can treat the resurrection. Uh, it's a bit like that good china. Um, you know, we trot it out for Easter Day, and we get it out and we think about it if we have an evangelistic event going on, non-Christians uh, looking into evidence, that sort of thing. Um, well, it's a couple of Sundays now since Easter Day. Do we put it back in the drawer? I think that's the temptation, isn't it? But what we're going to see from our passage tonight is that the resurrection is indispensable from the day-to-day -day life of the Christian faith. It changes everything. Without it, we're living a faith that's futile. Now, I'm conscious in saying that, that, um, you know, that, that probably conjures up all sorts of different reactions amongst us. We're, we're probably coming from different starting points here tonight. That's okay. Um, maybe you're new to the faith and you're a bit puzzled um, by the idea of the resurrection having such a big impact. You know, surely it was a, a one-off event 2,000 years ago. How does that affect my day-to-day Maybe you've been a Christian a while, and um, perhaps you felt, started to feel a little bit jaded. You still find joy in the gospel, but it's much more fleeting than it used to be. Maybe it feels like what we talk about on Sundays, it just doesn't stick when it comes to the rest of the week. It feels a bit irrelevant. Maybe you're even feeling like the Christ, you've been sold short with the Christian life to, when it comes to living as one of Jesus' people. I don't think it's very hard as a Christian to end up feeling a bit directionless, like you're lacking purpose. Maybe you look back to the days sort of once upon a time when you really were gunning for Jesus and you know that that's just not you anymore. Maybe you feel like you've plateaued. And perhaps you just don't expect God to do anything about that, for that to change. So it seems strange that the resurrection, something so simple and something so basic could have any sort of traction in your life, could speak into that at all. Well, as we turn to our passage, I want you to just dare to imagine that it could have that sort of impact on you. We're hopping into the late stages of Paul's letter to the church in a place called Corinth, um, and it's a church with a host of issues going on, um, which Paul has been addressing one by one as you go through the book. Um, 
So it's a church that we see is, has real problems with divisions. Um, it's a church where the way they're living is often immoral or just totally unloving. And now, in chapter 15, um, the Corinthians have the problem of uh, treating the resurrection a bit like how we might be. Um, they've got the wrong view of it. You see, the heart of the problem is there at the end of verse 12. Have a look with, down with me. Paul asked that question. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So within this church in Corinth, some are saying that the resurrection didn't happen. They're denying the resurrection, and they don't seem at all bothered by it. So that's the context Paul's writing into, and uh, that's why we're going to look at this resurrection, turn it over in our hands. And the way that Paul speaks into it is to remind them of the core of the gospel. So turn with me to verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So here we go. Here's the reminder. Um, here is the original gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians. It's the gospel that, uh, did you pick up in verse 3 as we had it read for us? Um, he says it's of first importance. Here's the gospel that without which belief is empty. It's in vain. Here's how it starts. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, you and I don't realize this um, because we're so used to it. Uh, but this is actually a very weird thing to say. Uh, because we're familiar with the Jesus story, uh, we just skim over what Paul says in that sentence there. You see, Christ isn't a name. If you were trying to add uh, Jesus on Facebook, you wouldn't type in uh, Jesus Christ. You would type in something like Jesus Ben Joseph or something like that. Because Christ is a title. Um, the Christ is God's king, God's anointed one. But this Christ died. And just to hammer the point home, do you see what comes next? He was buried. And it's not like this Christ died in his opulent palace, surrounded by his followers at the end of a long and glorious reign. No, instead he died at the start of his kingdom. Look down again at verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then again, remember, Paul's emphasizing it. He was buried but then, then Paul says, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now that's bizarre. When you stop and think about it, that's, that's bonkers, right? But according to Paul, the thing of first importance is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Just notice the parallels. If, if Paul uh, says the Christ died, and he backs it up by saying that he was buried, notice how he backs out that uh, how he backs up that Christ rose. You see, he rose and he appeared, verse 5, to Peter. He appeared again in verse 5 to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 people. He appeared to James, his brother, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He appeared, the risen Lord Jesus, even to Paul, who at first was a persecutor of the church. So do you see Paul's point? It's there in verse 11. The Christ who is raised is indispensable when it comes to the good news about Jesus. 
Which is what raises that question that we started with uh, earlier on in verse 11. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Again, pay attention to what Paul is saying here, because I suspect that we reckon we know what Paul is saying, and actually we get it wrong. I think that we think he's writing something like, how can you say Jesus didn't rise? But no, see what he actually writes. He writes, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Why does that hit us as slightly strange? Well, it's because, actually, we've totally missed the significance of the resurrection. We don't get what it means when we hear that Christ is risen. The point of, of contention in this passage, it's all to do with the Jewish belief in the resurrection at the end of the age. Now, if this seems weird or unfamiliar, don't panic. Um, but actually, you might remember a few weeks ago, we actually saw this idea in John chapter 11. It was when Jesus was on the way to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Um, he met his two sisters uh, on the way. And do you remember Martha encounters him? And she says, she believes that her dead brother Lazarus, he'll rise again on the last day. The Jews believed that at the end of time, God would raise all people to face judgment as he sets the world to rights. You might also remember from the Gospels, uh, this is something that actually even the Pharisees get right. Um, they believe the prophets such as Daniel and Ezekiel um, in particular, and they believed in this cosmic resurrection of all people that was to come. Uh, you, might, you might remember that other group, the Sadducees, that they're sort of contrasted with. They're the group that don't believe in the resurrection. So even the Pharisees have this right in their minds, um, which is helpful. Remember who's writing here. It's Paul. Paul who was raised as a Pharisee. Paul who was raised believing in this resurrection at the end of time. But not only that, it's Paul who met the risen Lord Jesus and believed in that resurrection, all the more for having met him on that road to Damascus. And so Paul is astounded that the Corinthians are doing away with something so central to the gospel that they received and was preached to them. And so he spells out, he spells out seven implications, seven repercussions of what a disaster this is. We're going to rattle through them quickly, so I hope you had your coffee, you're awake. Ready? Firstly, verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ is raised. So the truth, the truth at the heart of those things of first importance, it's undone if there's no general resurrection. If there's no resurrection to come at the end of the ages, not even Jesus was raised. Secondly, start of verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. So if there's no resurrection, then Paul's entire life, his entire legacy, it's been empty. Um, for us, it means that any Sunday school talk that we might have given, uh, any home group Bible study that we've led, um, they're pointless. Sitting through a Sunday sermon, absolutely pointless. Thirdly, in verse 14 again, if Christ has not been raised, even more seriously, the Corinthians' faith is in vain. It's got no substance. It's worthless in the end. It profits nothing. Fourthly, verse 15, 
Paul and the apostles, they're found to be false witnesses about God. They're guilty of misrepresenting him. Fifthly, verse 17, have a look down with me. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If there's no resurrection, then we are still under God's wrath. We're alienated from him. We're enemies with him in our hearts and minds. Sixthly, in verse 18, if there's no resurrection, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If there's no resurrection, then when our loved Christian brothers and sisters die, it's a chilling and it's a final goodbye. Literally, Paul is saying that they have perished. In other words, they've gone to face God's judgment. They're subject to God's wrath. It's not simply that they've died. Seventhly, verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. Let me be blunt. If there's no resurrection, our hope is in a dead man. How foolish. All Christians everywhere, all Christians in this room, are pitiful. Except, mercifully, wonderfully, Paul resets our sights in verse 20. Have a look down at it with me. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And notice how the risen Christ is described. Tim alluded to it earlier. He is the first fruits. Now, first fruits is a term uh, for the beginning of harvest time. You can sort of picture the idea, can't you? There's a field, and maybe one corner of it gets a bit more that sunlight earlier in the day. So the crops ripen that little bit sooner, um, that you get the first fruits. Um, but for God's people, the first fruits, they held a deep significance. They were given as an offering to God, um, thanking him for the rest of the harvest to come. Because if you have those first fruits then you have the deposit, you have the guarantee of getting the full harvest later on. So by sacrificing the first fruits, you're giving back the first of the harvest to God. And that is how Paul wants the Corinthians to picture Jesus. He is the first of those who've fallen asleep, i.e. died. He's the first of them to rise again. But all who've fallen asleep will one day rise. So Jesus being raised from the dead, it's proof of this resurrection at the end of days. It's proof of the day of judgment to come. Paul likens Jesus to Adam in verse 21. Do you see that? For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Do you remember back in the book of Genesis um, how our first parents, they sinned? And they brought death into the world. Adam was destined to go back to the ground that he was made from. Jesus also went into the ground, only to rise again. Jesus is the new man. Jesus is not God who was man for a little bit and then stopped being a man. Do you know the ruler of the universe right now is a man? As Christians, we don't believe in this sort of bodiless soul continuing forever and ever. 
but we do believe in the resurrection of the body. And we believe it because of this chapter. Jesus was raised, so all people will be raised. Do you see why this is so indispensable? Maybe not yet. Okay, so Paul goes on. The risen man, Jesus, he rules. He rules as man was always meant to rule. The way Adam never could. Because Jesus rose, the wo- we know the world will be set to rights. He will destroy all dominion, authority, and power. He will put all his enemies under his feet. And Paul clarifies there's an order. Christ is raised first. He rules, but not over God's. And eventually he'll put all things under the feet of his father. He'll usher in the new creation. So do you see? Christians are future-facing people. This is cosmic. This is epoch-defining stuff, isn't it? Christ has indeed been risen from the dead, which means we now, this evening, are living in the beginning of the resurrection age. And so Paul goes on. He he starts to flesh out how nonsensical it is for Christians to live as they do if there's no resurrection. And he does it with four examples. Um, Warning. The first one's the hardest, so we'll tackle it first. Okay. So have a look down at verse 29 with me. Paul writes, Now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? I won't do it as hard. Um, Now there have been pages and pages and pages uh, sort of spent discussing all the various theories as to what Paul's going on about here. Um, And it's hard because it's not recorded in the Bible. We don't have it anywhere in the New Testament. We don't have any record of this practice happening anywhere apart from in Corinth. Um, one commentary I picked up, it had four and a half pages of various different theories about what Paul is talking about here, um, only to say at the end, we don't really know. So I, th- I thought we'd just cut to the chase. I'd save us the legwork. Um, that's their conclusion. Um, but it's fair to say it's a, ra- it's a verse that raises all sorts of questions. Uh, who's this baptism for? Is it for believers? Is it for non-believers? Why are they doing it? How does it work? How do you do it? Um, Does Paul even approve of what they're doing? I think all valid questions, but questions that we cannot know. We just don't know them. But we don't need to know the what to understand the illustration, do we? Don't get distracted by what we can't know so that we miss what we can know, i.e., whatever Paul is referring to when he talks about baptism for the dead... It doesn't make sense. It's stupid if there's no resurrection. Quite simple, really, isn't it? Um, How about that second example? Look down at verse 30 with me. If there is no resurrection, Paul asks, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If there's no resurrection, why on earth would Paul put himself in the firing line? Historians mostly agree that uh, it would be about 300 years after Paul wrote this letter before there'd be any benefits to claiming to be a Christian. Um, You wouldn't gain any power or prestige. All you gain is rejection and mockery and beatings and persecutions. So why did Paul do it? It's because he believed it was true. One of the biggest testaments to uh, the, the truth of the gospel The reality of it is this, is when you think about what happens to the Jewish community to transform it 
so radically. You know, why did an insular group of people suddenly become worldwide evangelists? Why did the Jews who'd fought hard, really hard, over centuries to worship on the Sabbath suddenly give that up and worship on what they called the Lord's Day instead? Why would they suddenly start to die as martyrs? It's because they'd seen the resurrected Jesus and they understood that now we're in the resurrection age. Again, we're not really sure by what Paul's referring to by fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. Um, We're not 100% sure, but that's okay. We get the point, don't we? With nothing more than human hopes, what would be the gain? If the resurrection isn't true, why on earth would you bother? The Christian life, it's a joke. To deny the resurrection is to take out that bottom piece of the Jenga tower, is to saw off the branch that you're sitting on, on the tree, It's futile, and it brings down the entire faith. The Christian way of life falls flat on its face. The third example is there in that quote from Isaiah 22. Do you see it? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do you realize this phrase is true if all that's ahead of us is death? If life's nothing more than a long queue to the crematorium, hedonism right, isn't it? Uh, doing whatever feels good. It's, it's true. And let's be honest, that's the spirit of our generation, isn't it? Do whatever you want. We'll be dead tomorrow. Squeeze whatever you think the best is out of life and do it. Which leads us into the fourth thing, actually. Have a look down again. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So if all that matters is the twitching of my body, I might as well get it to twitch in a way that's favorable to me, right? Uh, At least before the maggots get to it. Um, If there's no resurrection, there is no concern about meeting God on the last day. We often talk about peer pressure, um, but I think that we assume that we grow out of it uh, after our teenage years. Maybe we do to some extent um, in terms of how we behave, But what do we accept because our culture says it's okay? Do we tolerate adultery, gluttony, gossip, drunkenness? Wake up. Stop sinning because it does matter. The truth of the resurrection is much more than a resuscitation of Jesus' body. It's the beginning of the resurrection age and the judgment to come. And so the questions posed to each of us here this evening are these. Do we believe in this resurrection age? And will we live in light of the times we're in? For the Corinthians, it meant um, utter transformation in the way that they were living. Instead of deepening those divisions that they had amongst them, the resurrection age gave them a reason for unity in Christ. The resurrection gave them motivation for purity and integrity as they prepared to stand before the judgment seat of God. And Paul reminded them that it is love that continues through the resurrection age into the new creation. So there's no room for unlovingness amongst God's people. But how about for us? What does the resurrection mean? 
How can we avoid a futile faith? Well, there are two commands that I think encapsulate um, Paul's call to the Corinthians, and they're the opposite of treating Christ's resurrection as that fine china that gets sort of shoved in the drawer for most of the year. The first, of, the first is from verse 34 that we looked at just now. Don't be misled. The world around us, it scoffs at the idea um, that there's a resurrection to come. It's laughable to suggest that one day we'll rise up to be judged by God as he sets the world to rights. It's entirely countercultural to base your life on the assumption that that will happen. It will be very tempting to settle for a life that is um, cautious and prudent and secure and self-enhancing. Basically the middle-class dream. But if we settle for living that way, we'll be settling for, at best, a half-gospel. The second command comes from back in verse 2. Have a look at it with me. Hold firmly, hold firmly to the truth that the resurrection age has begun. This isn't some weird optional add-on to Christianity. If you're here purely because you like good morals or a sense of community or good music, um, I'm afraid you're missing the point. In the week, if you're preaching a gospel to yourself that's entirely focused on either 2,000 years ago or entirely focused upon today, then you've let go of the things of first importance. You've missed what Jesus' resurrection means. Do we treat this reality, this reality that we're in the resurrection age, as precious here at St. Mary's? Do we try and remind ourselves that we're headed for resurrection judgment and the new creation beyond? I have a suggestion for how we can do this. It is just a small way, and it is super corny, just to warn you. Um, but it's simple, so very doable. Um, when you next go and buy soap, choose the scent of that soap very carefully. I suggest that you try and buy the same one I do. I'm not on commission. Um, it is called milk and honey. That's the, that's the scent of it, and it's what it smells of. Um, and it is just a little reminder. You know, I know I'm going to wash my hands at least once every day. It's just a little nudge that when I wash my hands, I know that I'm heading for the new creation, the new promised land, the new land of milk and honey. So go and buy the same, pick it up, Available. Other brands are probably available. Um, hopefully you'll have that small prompt, just that little nudge to remind you that you're a future-facing person if you're a Christian. To realize the times that we're living in. We're living in the age of the resurrection. And hopefully, with God's help, you will hold firm to the true gospel of the risen Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have raised Jesus from the dead. Thank you that that is true and that our faith is not futile. Please help us by your Holy Spirit to see the times that we live in, to see the significance of the resurrection, to look forward to the day when you set the world to rights through your Son. And we pray that we would live in light of that.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. for your questions. Uh, we've got lots of uh, really good ones. Um, so let's start off um, with uh, milk and honey. Uh, what is it about uh, milk and honey that the centre should prompt us to think about? Yes, uh, so sorry for sort of skimming through that. I realise we covered a lot of ground tonight, so I was conscious I didn't want to overload in the sermon. But the whole point of that is, in the Old Testament, it is uh, God's people. They're a picture of the sort of bigger reality that's going to go on when we come to the Lord Jesus. So in the Old Testament, God's people spend a long time in the wilderness. They're promised that they're going to go to this land that God's going to give them. And it's described as a land of milk and honey. And they're to look forward to this land of milk and honey, just like we're to look forward to the new creation. So as you wash your hands, and they smell lovely of uh, milk and honey, um, just remember, I'm forward-facing. We're in the resurrection age, and that's where I'm heading. Does that help? Great. Yes, I think that's, that's helpful. Um, let's stay um, in the Old Testament kind of mm. area. Um, uh, Paul, in verse 32, quotes uh, uh, from Isaiah. He says, which, uh, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, um, which on its own... Sounds a little bit random to come from Isaiah. Mm. Uh, so what, what is the context of that verse? Why is it that Paul's chosen? Broad like strokes. Early on in Isaiah, God paints a picture of how his people and not just the nation of Israel, all people in other nations have sinned against him and how he's going to come in judgment. He's going to meet out. Again, it's that picture of the big reality to come. Oh, that way for you. Um, God's people have turned their back on him, so he's going to judge them through other nations invading and taking them into exile. Um, but God's people, they don't really listen. They don't really believe that it's coming. They don't believe it's a reality. So in brief, that's what they're saying. They're saying, um, you know, life's short. doesn't matter what's going to happen. We can do what we want. We're here for a short time. Let's enjoy it. That's broad strokes. Come and chat to me afterwards if you want to chat more Isaiah. Which, so I guess that's, mm. that's why that Paul is then quoting it here. Because yes. so um, it's, it's the Israelites have, have gone astray um, as, as the Corinthians are mm. at a risk of doing. And, well, and, and as much as anything, they don't realise what's on the cards. They don't realise the times they're in are the times when God is going to judge. Just like in a more cosmic level, we're in the times where God is going to judge. Great, thanks. Um, and then uh, verse 26. Um, if Christ defeated death on the cross, does that mean uh, death is already destroyed? Or is Paul saying that the destruction of death is yet to happen? Mm, good question. Um, so... I'm going to quote my good friend Rob Phillips and say we're going to look at this more <laughs> next week. But, 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 the point from tonight is we're in the resurrection age. So it hasn't happened fully yet, but we're in the age where it's going to happen. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, great. Um, so come back next week. Yep, come um, back next week. We're going to look at the other half of this chapter. Yes. Well, yeah.